Well, this is session six, and we will at least make Smyrna and Pergamum and probably even a little bit of Thyatira, if not all of it. We'll just see how things go. Uh, my intent initially was possibly not to go through all of the churches, spend a little bit more time kind of introducing them so you have a feel for all of them, and also spent some time with the church at Ephesus, and the pattern will be similar in all of the other churches, so um, I can take that time to devote to some other passages that will... Uh, be a little bit more difficult, not only interp interpretation, but others that are neglected. In fact, uh, the uh, the treatment of chapters 2 and 3 is quite extensive in virtually all the commentaries. In fact, there are some commentaries that only treat the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And then you stop right there. <laughs> Who cares about eschatology, you know? Uh, particularly liberal... If there's a liberal commentary that deals with the Bible at all, uh, these are some of the older ones. They'll just do the first three chapters. So, so they're they're pretty well, and they're pretty straightforward. I, I think with the background I gave you uh, and that that pattern, uh, you can exegete them on your own. So we're looking at the churches. We completed looking at Ephesus, the next one on the list and on the circuit geographically is Smyrna. At Ephesus, we saw that uh, the church had lost its first love. Background slide there is Patmos. That's where John was, obviously. Next church is Smyrna. Let's look at the circumstances of the church. This also was a very important, important church in the first century and an important city. In fact, Smyrna was probably second to Ephesus. Today, Ishmir is probably the most important city because of its location. Ephesus lost its prominence because the harbor got silted in and it never grew beyond uh, that location. Uh, Smyrna or Ishmir, present-day Ishmir, is right on the coast. So it re remains prominent to this very day. So there's Ephesus and Smyrna. If you can see in the background there, Ishmir. You see that little in the back there? Smyrna would have been the harbor of the first century. And because Ishmir is a major city, uh, I don't know how many million, I can't remember, but it's quite sizable. Right there, you can see, right on the coast. In fact, that's, that's something of what Ephesus was like. It had a river that went to the city that opened out, obviously, in the Aegean, and today it's silted in. Zooming in on Google Map, Google Earth. Uh, city today quite extensive. As you can see, uh, way off in this area. 
Smyrna in the first century, all, and obviously the archaeologists have a problem because the city is built up around it, so the only site available is just that little spot right there. So there's not as much to see there. There's the site, that green area in there. And as you can see, in the midst of the whole modern-day city of Ishmir. It's a little cloudy slide. That's the best I could do on that day. Couldn't handle the climatology. But basically, this is the GNC right out there. A couple of you commented on liking the slides. Uh, these are primarily for Lindsay. She's a real visual person. I'll send her an email and I'll ask her, did you read the email? She'll say no. Then I'll send her another one with slides on or pictures on it. Did you read the email? Oh, yeah, yeah, I read it. And as I probed further, she looked at the pictures. And to her, looking at the pictures constitutes reading. So, <laughs> Is that true, Lindsay? <laughs> That's right. She, she would. She would like. She likes the book of Revelation because it's so visual. Uh, this is just a more zoomed-in photograph from a satellite of the the site. Uh, not extensively excavated. Most of the excavation is isolated over here, so there's probably some more area that could be excavated, but. There's lots of areas probably beyond the site that is available that uh, probably has artifacts underneath it. In fact, it most certainly does. <clears throat> Just another shot of the Agora from that mountain. and uh, It's a hill, and the city grows up a hill. This is just kind of a zoomed-in picture of it. And there's the Agora, or the marketplace. The city is about 50 miles north of Ephesus. Economically, politically, population-wise, always second to Ephesus. Some of what was found there, Poseidon. So, idolatry, common throughout all of the cities of the Book of Revelation and all of the area of Asia Minor, in fact, all of the Roman Empire. Uh, more of the Agora, first level arches. There's things you can see on the top as well. There you go, a little view on the top. Uh, those date back to the first century. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. Let's see. Let me. No, I don't think they let you on those. You can walk. Oops. You can walk in this area, but this little bridge there, I think they have that blocked off, if I remember right. Another temple, uh, you find them virtually every city, and it's prominent. Temple of Athena, in this case. And in a lot of the photographs, you can kind of see the city surrounding. Um... I think it was 2008, if I remember right. Ray, what did they tell you about um, like the statues with the noses all cut off? Did they tell you anything about that with, with the Islamic influence? 
No, no. They told us in Egypt that the, that the Muslims would, would break their noses off and disfigure the statues so people wouldn't be worshipping them as part of Islam. I just didn't know if they it's probably, perpetuated that. That's possible. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't. Most of what I did, I just pretty much did, uh, particularly Tur- Turkey, I just rented a car, mapped it out for myself, made an itinerary, and went and visited sites. So I didn't talk to anybody and get a lot of information. Didn't sleep much. Eating and eating and sleeping were not priorities. Who needs those things, right? In fact, I, I drove... Uh, 1,800 miles in three and a half days and visited 14 archaeological sites. If I'd been married, I'd be divorced. (laughs) Okay. Athena. Okay. Just a little bit of the circumstances. Visually, uh, religiously, you saw idolatry was common. Uh, Many Jews there in the first century. Caesar worship was, uh, again, prominent there. And the church, probably founded by those coming out of Ephesus, as were probably all the others, maybe not Paul personally, but his disciples would have gone out from Ephesus and probably part of the training that he gave them was go out and found churches. Uh, we don't know who founded it specifically. Probably after the third missionary journey is a suggestion, at least of some of the commentators. There is a church there today, as you would expect in a large city like that. I don't know if its roots go all the way back to the first century, but there is a church there. <clears throat> Polycarp, a famous church father, was martyred there and lived there. along with uh, 1,500 others were martyred. And then later on another occasion, another 800. Which is interesting because the major characteristic of Smyrna, Smyrna is in fact suffering and persecution. The mention of Smyrna is only here. The only reference in the New Testament. And like we said in uh, the little introduction, these churches were not necessarily prominent churches. They may be in a prominent city like Smyrna, but the church itself was not that important. I mentioned uh, in the surrounding area of Laodicea, Colossae was more important than Laodicea. And there's a third city, Hierapolis, that was even more important than Colossae. And yet they're not included in this group of letters. So, Smyrna uh, was selected because of the characteristic, probably, of being a suffering church. And as a result of suffering, what God does usually with suffering in a church is He purifies it so it appears to be a purified church. So, let's look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, same Same uh, call, if you will. And the correspondent aspect, the first and the last. That also comes out of chapter 1. And and these are the words of Christ. This isn't in the description. 
Uh, this goes to verse 18. He's the living one, the first and the last. Uh, verse 18 is the living one. And in verse 18, and I was dead, an allusion back to verse 18 of chapter 1, first and the last, who was dead in uh, chapter 2. Uh, the reason, why, let me ask you, why, why would you suppose that Jesus addresses them? I think the answer is pretty straightforward. Why would he address them as the one who was dead? What would you suggest? Yeah, he, he suffered the ultimate in suffering. He was a martyr. Well, we don't like to use the word martyr of him, but he suffered basically an innocent death. So he suffered more than any of them would anticipate to suffer except those that would have died for their faith. But even Christ was more than that because he died for the sins of the world. So a reference to his death, a reference to the crucifixion, a reference to the cross. Uh, the first and the last. This is how it's related. Notice, I remember I mentioned that uh, the description of Christ in the letters in some way relates. So this would be an encouragement to them to realize, hey, we're being addressed to the one that has had the ultimate in suffering. I was dead, and the encouragement is the other description, and has come to life. This is the one that says this. He was raised from the dead. And being identified with him... Any suffering, any martyrdom that they would experience, they would also be raised from the dead. Next, we have the complaint in verse 9. Or, I, can't, I don't know why, but I, I, I mix that up every time. And I, I've done it consistently. You're not the only ones I'm picking on. <clears throat> Compliment. Verse 9. And by the way, this one doesn't have a complaint. I know your tribulation. So that's the essence of what they're going through. Which is kind of a forerunner of a major theme that we will pick up in chapter 6, where during that future eschatological seven-year period of time, there will be a lot of persecution. And actually, every church should anticipate and expect at least suffering, if not overt persecution. The church in America is unique in that we have not had extensive periods of persecution. Why should we think that we will never have persecution in America? It would probably be the best thing for the church. Every age and virtually everywhere else outside of North America, the church has suffered. And even in North America, I used to go to Mexico City and do seminars down there. And some of the believers there were persecuted. And on some occasions, they would report of uh, some of the incidents that took place. Uh, the Roman Catholic influence was very, particularly in small villages, uh, they dominated, Roman Catholicism dominated those churches, and for anyone to claim to be even evangelical, opened themselves up to persecution. So, uh, we should be prepared for it. 
in fact, the assumption, uh, what is the passage? I may have it in my notes. I don't remember, uh, is it 2 Timothy or, or 1 Timothy? All who desire to live godly will suffer, basically, is the summary of that. So it's kind of, it's, it's normal for us as believers to suffer. It's abnormal for us not to. So the church in America is an abnormal church, you might say. And the epitome of the suffering was in the first century is uh, pictured in uh, the church of Smyrna. So I know your persecution. God is aware of it. Uh, the Lord is aware of it. He obviously sees it and understands it. He experienced it himself. And the next part of it, and your poverty. And the poverty is probably as a result. They, they probably lost their homes. That was probably the result of the persecution. Their possessions were taken, confiscated. But you are rich. And that's oftentimes what suffering does, is it... Uh, it forces us to trust in the Lord, and in trusting in the Lord, we have the resources of heaven and earth, and that makes us rich. Maybe not materially, but we have more than what riches can purchase. Uh, this is kind of the counterpart of the church at Laodicea. Uh, he talks about them as being wealthy, and in fact, let's look at that passage. Let's look at that in the church at Ephesus, uh, Laodicea. Uh, verse 17, because you say, I am rich and ha have become wealthy and have need of nothing, a self-sufficient church. And probably because of the self-sufficiency, uh, they had something of an attitude of complacency, a lukewarmness. So you say, I'm rich and I am, they, they say, I am rich, I am wealthy, I have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. It's kind of the counterpart of Smyrna. They're experiencing persecution and poverty, but they're rich. So, from a biblical worldview, it is preferable to be deprived. It is preferable to be lacking. It is preferable to be vulnerable. It's preferable to be in need. Uh, because it tends to encourage us to trust in a resource beyond ourselves. Uh, that's the characteristic of this church. And not only that, and the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not. Uh, now, it appears that they're not influenced by it because uh, they're being blasphemed. So, uh, most of the tribulation here is external. So, not only physical suffering, but uh, verbal abuse as well, blasphemy. Do not fear. So that's the compliment, verse 9. The major characteristic, this is a faithfully suffering, persecuting church. I guess I didn't finish that out. Faithfully, well, that's right. Faithfully suffering persecution. And that's the characteristic of this church.
summary. There's no complaint. Instead, we have comfort. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested. So it's not going to end. They've already experienced persecution. It's going to continue. Uh, There's a purpose behind it that uh, you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Here's another number. I see no reason why not to take that literally. Uh, Again, the commentators kind of jump around on that and particularly the historicists and use the ten to refer to ten periods of time or ten years or whatever. Uh, I think this is particular to the church, ten days. Be faithful, so we have comfort and encouragement. Be faithful until death. The one that died encourages them to be faithful to the same point. And then we have a promise there as well. And a challenge, uh, ten and eleven. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, A reward. The crowns, if you study crowns throughout the New Testament consistently, they're usually associated with rewards in the kingdom. Uh, Crown of life in the kingdom, a special Abundance of life, perhaps. Uh, I don't know. Uh, It's hard to conceive. You have to kind of use your imagination as to how God may fulfill some of these promises. So they have a promise of the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We have the call again, call to attention. And in in this case, it's a call to continue in uh, faithfulness. This call is to the churches again, plural. And now we have the word, he who overcomes. Same word shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, that's interesting. Because when we get to chapter 19, when it speaks of the second death, this is ultimate condemnation, ultimate uh, damnation. Uh, Condemnation has already taken place. It's the actual destiny of the unbeliever. So it's interesting that we have the second death here. Because they're certainly believers, and not only that, but they're faithful believers. So why would uh, he promise this? Well, probably because it's kind of the other extreme of life is second death. Uh, Maybe the implication is, is they're going to be the furthest away from that other extreme. 
or maybe it uh, uh, pertains to not to, to them as individuals, but to them in terms of uh, their works. They, their works will not be burnt up. They will not experience a second death. So we have the overcomers again. I was going to deal with that at Ephesus, but let's look at that term. Uh, the term nikao is the Greek word there. It has, uh, in many of the contexts, it has the idea of overcoming um, uh, adversity, conflict. It's used in a military sense of conquering, uh, to defeat an enemy, to vanquish an enemy even. That's some of the context where it's used. Uh, it's translated in the New American Standard to overpower something, to conquer something in Revelation 6.2, actually. Uh, a victory in chapter 15. And most commonly, it's translated overcome. Uh, we are in a spiritual battle. We are in a conflict. We do face obstacles. There are enemies to the believer. And in every case, we are called to be faithful. Uh, it's not easy living the Christian life consistently with the right motives, with all of the proper motivation. It's not easy living in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Uh, the overcomer is consistent in being able to overcome those enemies. Now, we're always cognizant, uh, and the word is used in this context, we're always cognizant that our victory is not our own. Our victory is as a result of the empowering of the Holy Spirit. John 16.33, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world, you have tribulation. But take courage, I have, and here's the word, I have overcome the world. He is the victor. He is the one that has won for us the victory. And it's through His Spirit and in that power of His resurrection, the resurrection power, that we are enabled to overcome. Other than that, we are overwhelmed. Another passage referring to Christ in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 5. One of the elders said to me, stop weeping. We'll get to that chapter. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. Same word. So as to open the book and its seven seals. That qualifies him to open a seven-sealed scroll that we'll talk about. The illusion is back to his death. And you could even include his life in that he lived the victorious Christian life. He is the pattern. He lived it in such a way that he is the pattern for you and I. Uh, yes, he was fully God and at the same time fully man. But I think the scriptures teach that he did not use his deity to enable him to live the, the Christian life. He lived in the power of the Spirit in the same way that you and I are called upon and exhorted to live in the Spirit. 
When he was hungry, he could have satisfied that hunger with his omnipotence. But he endured it 40 days. So he is the overcomer, the ultimate in overcomer. You and I cannot do it on our own. 1 John 5, 4-9, through 9, we have the occurrence of the word, I think, three times. For whatever is born of God overcomes. That's the key. Regeneration first. Whatever is born of God overcomes. The world. And this is the victory. Uh, a word there that's related to nikao. This is the victory that has overcome, same word, nikao, that has overcome the world, our faith, our dependence on Him. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's how we become overcomers. Interestingly, the same... uh, Word is used in that kind of military context of the Antichrist. Now, it's not in the sense of overcoming in the spiritual sense of the believer, but in the sense of conquering. I should have given you that reference first to kind of give you the idea behind the word. Uh, for example, uh, Revelation 6.2, I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering. And to conquer. The word is used two times there. Same word. Nikao. Yes. And not only that, but in uh, chapter 11, verse 7, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war. This is with the two witnesses. And overcome them and kill them. Overcome is the translation of nikao again. So that's kind of its general everyday usage. And it's used of Antichrist in those cases. Uh, In Revelation and in other passages that pertain to to the Christian, uh, we're talking about a spiritual overcoming or a spiritual victory over Uh, the obstacles or the enemies that are bent on destroying us. Another Antichrist verse is chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with with fire, and those who had uh, come off victorious, actually, yeah, victorious from the beast. These are those that are victorious over the beast. So these are overcomers in direct confrontation of the beast. And from his image and from the number of the name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. So this is a believer again. This is another believer, but in relationship to overcoming the Antichrist. Also of the believer, kind of a general statement in terms of evil. In chapter 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. No, that's Romans. That's Romans 12, 21. Evil in general. 
And then we have the overcomers in the book of Revelation where we have the word used as a consistent encouragement. So that looks at our second church. We have Ephesus, main idea, lost its love, its first love, Smyrna, suffering church. Uh, On another note on that word nikao, uh, a couple of you asked about the Nicolaitans. They'll be mentioned later on as well. Uh, I was running out of time, so I didn't comment on that as well. Um, scholars just, I don't think they really know. They, they speculate on who they were. We don't have uh, external mention of them other than what we have here in the book of Revelation. So all kinds of suggestions are suggested by the commentators. The one comment that I'm making here is uh, the root word is related to this, this nikao. As you can see from the first part of the word, even the translation, Nicolaitans. Uh, One of the suggestions is this might be the early origins of um, kind of this distinction between what we call the clergy and the, the, what's the other word? Laity. Laity. Yeah, yeah, that's the word I was searching for. Claity and the laity. and that's a possibility. The, the suggestion that in this early stage of church history, we already have the roots of those that are starting to dominate, take positions of authority, and probably going beyond what is intended in, in the Bible in terms of ruling within the church. I don't know. Uh, I don't think we have enough information to be conclusive. Others suggest that it was a sect of antinomian, perhaps Jewish-influenced uh, Unbelievers, uh, we'll encounter it again. It'll be, it'll come up again. So I'll give you a little, little of what the commentators say. Personally, I don't think we have enough information. Like I say, so I don't want to speculate any further than that. Uh, others suggest uh, a group that were inclined towards uh, kind of the alternative of. Uh, no, antinomianism, uh, anti-law, so that would be uh, probably licentiousness and immorality were prominent amongst them. But again, I don't know. Uh, the reason I mention it in relationship to Nikao, uh, some of the scholars see a relationship there. Any co- comments or questions on our first two churches? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, I think we overcome because Christ overcame. I think there is a connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he died. I mean, he's the one that was dead. And if they can even, you know, he encourages them unto death. And the way you do that is follow him in his pattern and dependence upon him. Our next church, the church at Pergamum, the word means mixed or married even in some 
secular contexts, meaning of the word, which captures something of what was going on in the church, as we'll see. Some of the circumstances or background. This was another important city, another city close to the coast, further north, about, I've got 80 or 58 miles. I bet I clocked that on my rental car. Because <laughs> some of the commentators have other suggestions, and I've got mine there, so. There's Patmos again, Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, Pergamum, and if you see, there's a modern day city uh, just below the, uh, kind of the high point there, Bergama, which you can kind of see where the name comes from. It comes from ancient Pergamum. Relatively close, not exactly on the coast, but close enough that it was uh, another trade center. So we're progressing north here, and then the next one will go east. Smyrna, Pergamum. Uh, That Google Earth map gives you a little feel for terrain there. This is... Little mountain range, mountain range here. Uh, can't quite tell, but I'll show you some more. Uh, this is up on a little mountain ridge there. Hmm, why is that in there? And that. Okay. This is a look from from the uh, ancient site of Pergamum. It's it's really a beautiful area. You see a little bit of the mountains that I was trying to point out there. This is looking east. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. Good point. Lindsay likes to work the professors. From from her coaching days, you can envision her working the uh, the refs, and she does the same with the professors. <clears throat> That's a, another Google map shot of it. This is a lake. Here's a dam here. And this is actually a, a hill where uh, this high point in most of the sites, you, you see this at Corinth, they, they call it an Acropolis, and that's where they built all the temples, and that's where all the temple ritual and all that was. And in a place like this, the city, and there's evidence of uh, archaeological remains of the ancient city would be down here, just like modern Bergama. So this is pretty typical. And then they would build at the top kind of like a high place where they would build various temples, uh, sometimes even uh, temples to emperors. And you can probably trace uh, the way to get up there, you ride this little road that goes along here, all the way around there, and then back over here, and you park in this parking lot, and then you can see. This is another very well-developed archaeological site. Uh, They've done a lot of archaeology there, so there's a lot of things to see. We're going to look at some cities that are hardly anything. Another theater, which is pretty typical 
I don't know if you can quite make it out. This little gray there, that's a theater. Pretty spectacular because it overlooks this other direction. That shot, that other photograph that I showed you uh, is looking in this direction, the east direction. I think this is photographs of north-south Google map. Uh, this theater faces to the west, so you could uh, stand there and actually see the Aegean Sea. Closer. And there's a little clearer view of the theater. Do you see it? Uh, there's an impressive temple, the Hadrian, right there. Um, this is, I'm going to refer to... Uh, in fact, this is probably what is referred to when it refers to the, uh, the dwelling place of Satan. Where does it say that? Let's read that. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then at the end of the verse, uh, was killed among where Satan dwells. Two references to where Satan dwells. It's probably an allusion to... That temple right in this area, uh, right there, I believe. I'll show you some photographs of it, but kind of give you some orientation as to where things are. Trajan's Temple. Oh, oh, I, I, I misspoke. It's over here. Here's the altar to Zeus. Here it is over here. I forgot about that. Um, what is a... Likely suggestion, because it was a major center for worship of Zeus. There was another temple that some of the scholars associate, uh, the temple of Asclepius. I can never pronounce that. Asclepius. Yeah, I won't even try. Uh, a serpent was prominent in... In fact, isn't that kind of the symbol for the medical profession comes from that, I believe? I don't... Does that ring a bell to you? This spiral serpent on whatever that other symbol is. Uh, this was a temple. And there's the theater with the same name. Uh, every... In fact, here's a... This is a second theater. This is down in the valley. This is not up there. The other one was up on the side of the hill. I'll show you another photograph of it. There it is, right there. Not as well preserved as the Ephesian Theater, but this is on the side of a hill, so they built it, and you have similar acoustics. Now, this one I wasn't able to kind of verify like at Ephesus, but uh, this one is quite impressive. This would be uh, tens of thousands of people. And you can see there, there's the Acropolis over here. This is down in the valley. So this is archaeology from uh, the city itself. So most of the inhabitants would have lived down here. And there would be temples and uh, uh, government buildings all along these main, main streets along with uh, markets and everything that you use commercially. There's that road that goes up there. And there's the Temple of... Trajan right there. Is that reflecting? And you see the theater right there. It's built on the side of the hill. Uh, those two little trees right there? 
quite impressive. Uh, I don't remember the height of these. I want to say somewhere in the range of 50 feet, somewhere in there, five stories. So if you can imagine, this whole thing probably had a roof over it. And these are the columns that upheld that roof. Quite impressive. Yes, the emperor. Another shot of it. And you can walk all that if you pay your... What was it? I can't remember the currency. About $25. <laughs> uh, the, let's see, who was the archaeologist? They dismantled a lot of the temples and particularly the altar of Zeus and took it to Germany, uh, the German archaeologists. And they've got it in a museum in Berlin. So uh, I didn't take these photographs. I got these from a friend that took, uh, took them. Uh, that's the altar to Zeus. Those are the two trees that you saw from the distance. On that side, this is just a portion of it. It would extend it further this way, and uh, the the site is a little bit in rubble because they took the the temple. And I'll show you a photograph of it in a moment. And as you can see, it's a beautiful site. Uh, this is in another direction. This is the city below, the present day city. So in the ancient time, uh, the inhabitants would have occupied areas like that. And the uh, Acropolis would have been reserved for primarily activities of idolatry. And most of these places, you, a whole cult of prostitute worship, you know, or prostitute uh, involvement in the worship. Mainly the go- the temples of the gods. Yeah. The, the temples to the emperors were primarily emperor worship. Okay. So that's the circumstances. What else did I want to say on that? Culturally, there was a significant library. They estimate 200,000 volumes, which is pr- quite large for ancient times. And a university. It was a university-type town, kind of like Knoxville. University town. Uh, the art of parchment making has its roots in Pergamum. So, literature and the uh, materials used for writing were made there. Population about 150,000. And as we saw religiously, uh, the Temple of Zeus was prominent. Asclepius. See, I can do it. Temple of Asclepius, the god of health, with the symbol of a serpent worshipped there. Does that ring a bell, Tom? And today we have uh, the present-day city of Bergama, and there's a small church there. 
in the text, verse 12, uh, typically to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. What did we say? The image that was conveyed in the vision of Christ, sharp two-edged sword. This is the same one that John saw that had the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Remember the image? Judgment. Judgment. So, uh, this is not going to be a positive uh, assessment here. He already introduces himself as the one that is the one that brings judgment. He's the one that says this, verse 13. Typically, I know your deeds. Uh, interestingly, I didn't point out the only one that departs from I know your deeds was the Smyrna one where he says, I know your tribulation. All of the others are I know your deeds. So uh, the deeds at, at Smyrna are assumed are positive because everything else is positive. So he knows their deeds, just like he knows all of the deeds of every church. And again, I take it kind of this is introductory, if you will, in terms of I know your ministries, if you would, if you want to translate it. I know your ministries. That's the way we would kind of understand it today. And then he uh, somewhat parenthetically where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. So in the midst of this adverse circumstance, the, the church remains somewhat faithful. Even in the days of Antipas. And again, this is probably a very specific individual. If you break that down etymologically, what is pas in the Greek? All. In other words, this guy was opposed to all. He could stand alone. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna endure. I'm I'm you know I don't care what you throw my way. The church may fall away. I'm gonna stand against it. In the days of Antipas, so he's a faithful guy. My witness, his attention is called to him. My faithful one, who was killed among you. So they've already had a martyr. And then to emphasize it again, where Satan dwells. So, uh, that's pretty complimentary, isn't it? He points out the, uh, the obstacle or the difficulty there where Satan dwells, but uh, it's very positive, very faithful. And attention is called to perhaps a leader. We, uh, again, we don't have any historical note. So most of the commentators just kind of take the word and and uh, the, the the name and uh, break it down and suggest what I just suggested. Uh, but attention is called to him, my witness. So this is these are high words of praise from from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they did not deny the faith; they held fast. So. Uh, this is commendable. And again, lots of applications we can draw.
So the obstacle, the main obstacle, in the midst of a very, very idolatrous and in fact a satanic place, Satan's dwelling place. There's a closer shot of what archaeologists believe was Zeus's altar, and then we'll shift back to Berlin. And if you can envision this structure that they dismantled, took piece by piece to Berlin and reconstructed it and put it in this museum. This would have been in that site there. This is one end of it. This is the other end of it. Quite impressive. And quite detailed uh, restoration was done. Uh, all of this, all, all of this came from Pergamum. Yeah. Yes, obviously. Yeah, in yeah, the things that they would have brought back from Pergamum would have been these columns, and even this is probably a reconstruction. The uh, the tops here, and some of the individual columns are probably reconstructed from one that was well preserved. But it's quite impressive. Um, the artwork is probably all original, like this, things like that. There's more of the artwork there. Yeah, all of these probably came right out of there. So well preserved over time. There might have there's probably some touch up reconstruction in some of the artwork. No, these are these are photographs of a friend of mine. Say that again? No, I don't know that they sacrifice. I don't know. Probably, I don't know. I, I don't have a. I don't know of a, of a historical incident of, in terms of sacrifice. What they sacrifice there? Yeah, but I don't know what they sacrifice. Uh, don't think of these altars necessarily in the Jewish sense. This is, these are pagan altars, so they may not have had sacrifices as was the Jewish reason for the temple. Sacrificed, right? That's possible. Good. That's probably the prostitution. Yeah. Okay. So we looked at the circumstances, correspondent, and the complement. There is a complaint, verse fourteen. But I have a few things against you, because you have some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, that takes you back to what? Numbers 22 through 24. And the whole incident, uh, what, what, what's the background there? Uh, the illusion is, is present here in the church at Pergamum. What did Balaam attempt to do? He, he tried to... And to compromise the Israelites. And I think that's what we have here. 
uh, again, as we will see throughout the book of Revelation, he'll take things out of the Old Testament, use them as examples in this case, in images. And uh, uh, one good thing, though, is uh, there are some. So it's, it's not, it doesn't sound like it's pervasive in the church, but uh, it's present. And anytime evil is allowed to, to remain, he, he, he's going to exhort against that. But as long as it remains, it will have an influence. So there are some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Uh, those are the specific compromises. And these are pretty, these are serious things. This is, this is blatant idolatry and blatant immorality. It's not unusual in big churches to find lots of young people that live together and think nothing of it and the church doesn't deal with it. There's just too many people. They're more interested in keeping the numbers up. That's pretty common in our culture. I don't know if it's common here in Tullahoma. Probably. I would not. Uh, those kinds of things. People within the church claiming to be believers involved in immorality. Now, all of us are tempted and all of us uh, are vulnerable to different levels of immorality, but temptation is in and of itself is not sin. It's what we do with the temptation. And in this case, uh, this is follow through on temptation and the idolatry that is mentioned, a sacrifice to idols. Thus, you also have some, here's an additional complaint, thus you have also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There they are again, whoever they may be. So, there have some who are in moral compromise. They have some who are in doctrinal compromise. And certainly, all of that together is spiritual compromise. So, it's not unusual that they're into idols. And idols are not just those little statues that people would bow down to, but uh, our culture is saturated with idolatry. In fact, anything that replaces God as your main motivation, source of uh, or places where we pour our energy apart from those things that God would have us to pour energy are basically our idols. Uh, so we're not free of idols. And the church is not free of them today as well. So I would summarize the church in doctrinal compromise in the midst of faithfulness. Kind of a mixed, mixed bag there. with the theater in the background. Now we have the uh, well, 
let's see, I've got some other things here. Okay, we have the complaint, doctrinal compromise, teaching of Balaam, teaching of the Nicolaitans, and we will get into a correction, uh, basically to repent. Or judgment. So that moves us to correction, verse 16. Repent. Same word we encountered before. Change your orientation. Change your thinking. Uh, change your worldview. Turn around. Repent, therefore. Or else, here's a threat. I am coming. And again, we see that recurring theme. I'm coming to you quickly, even. And I will make war against them. With the sword of my mouth. Clearly a judgment. They are not battling. They are not putting... Those that are compromising. They're not putting effort in overcoming. So he will battle with them. And he will overcome them. So we have the uh, emphasis of the judgment from the sword of his mouth. And it continues in, or the challenge picks up in verse 17. He who has an ear, we have the challenge begun with that. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, if you want to break that down, that's the call. To him who overcomes, there's the word again, to him who Overcomes, I to him I will give some of the hidden manna. Now these are allusions back all the way back to Mosaic times, but this is future. And I will give him a white stone. More allusions to things that come probably from the Old Testament. Uh, the hidden manna probably is an anticipation of millennial times where we will dine together with the Lord. We will have a millennial feast and there will be manna available. Heavenly provision. Just as God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, the uh, kingdom will not be a wilderness, but uh, God will make provision for us. This white stone uh, in some of the temples, not just in Pergamum, but in other places. Uh, some of them were like secret societies where they had secret initiations and entrance was allowed. You had to have the, the, the right stone to enter the right temple or the right association. I think this is an allusion to that historical background. Uh, so they will have a purified, a, a white stone, a, a brilliant, probably diamond-like stone. And this gives them access into God, it, God's presence. So their counterparts in the culture, they might show off. Uh, Look at my stone. Uh, you don't have one of these, do you? No, well, I'm not interested in it. But uh, this would be a, a, 
an item of pride and one that uh, might be placed prominently in the home because this gave them access to either a cult or a temple or some secret society of that culture. And the Christian might feel, well, you know, our little church down the street, you know, it's not that impressive. (laughs) We don't need any tickets or stones to get in. And Jesus is saying, in the millennial kingdom, you're going to have special access. And not everybody's going to come in. You've got a white stone. You are special. That's probably the illusion here. Probably cultural, yeah. I think in the in first century. In this case, not that I could find. Okay. Uh, not only a white stone. Uh, well, I guess that's it. Yeah, a white stone. No one knows, but he who receives it. And I think that's an allusion to the. Uh, the cultural situation as well. Uh, some of them would have secret inscriptions or secret things that only the initiated knew about or had the, the code or whatever it was as well. So here is a white stone that has some inscription, perhaps, that only they know it. Okay. Any questions on Pergamum? Summary of these churches so far, Ephesus lost its first love, Smyrna, faithfully suffering, Pergamum, a compromised church. Compromised, not just doctrinally, compromised. Uh, it, 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 does, it doesn't mention that they're dealing with them, so they're permitted within the church. That's a compromise. Not all of them are involved in the severe activities, but they're permitting it. So it's a compromised church. Thyatira is next, and I'm going to have to go to another set of slides. I... I'm not aware of the order. Like I said, the uh, the uh, his, the historicists do kind of play on the order, and they try to find the parallels. So the persecuted church would be the church up to uh, Constantine. And then after Constantine, apparently that would be the next, that would be uh, Pergamum, I guess. Well, we've looked at Ephesus, we've looked at Smyrna, and we just completed Pergamum. And that will move us to Thyatira. And we may not complete it, but that's okay. We'll complete it after lunch. And I just gave you that, so let's skip over that. And get right to Thyatira. 
Again, a little bit of the circumstances of the church where they lived in a city by the name of Thyatira. Uh, need to look at it on a map again. There's Ephesus, Smyrna. And the only significance I can see is it just kind of forms this circle and it may be the route that the bearer of the letters or the book would have taken. Uh, I'm not aware of any other significance. And then we come to Thyatira. Obviously, inland, uh, there's a small city that somewhat surrounds it. Actually, just a village. And there's not a whole lot to see there. There's a few things. Not like Pergamum and not like Ephesus. Uh, The Google Earth map. Uh, like I said, this is this is how I found the sites. I just had a general idea where they were, and then I narrowed in to find out where the sites were so that I could uh, drive right up to them. Uh, the one that was the most difficult would be the one in Ishmir. So, in a in a city, I needed to kind of narrow in, and with the the maps that I produced, I was able to do that. Uh, this is about all that we have there. In the existing city of Akhisar, and most of it is just scattered uh, artifact, so there's not a lot to see. Most of it is just laid out there, so you can just kind of take photographs of what you want. There's a church of St. John there, or the remains of one. Now, uh, archaeologically, you have to look at the stones, and I think this kind of a construction is late. Well, not real late, but it's not first century. It's, uh, well, obviously not first century. It's not even second century. I think it's closer to Byzantine. Byzantine, archaeologically, is the next, after kind of the Roman period, the next archaeological period would be Byzantine. And most of the churches are are Byzantine. There, There were no churches built until, I think, the second century. So most of the churches, like this one, would be Byzantine in era. So this is many years later. Okay. About the city, the only other reference is Acts 16.14. Remember there was a lady that was from Thyatira. Remember her name? God did a special work in her. Named Lydia, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple, purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. She was from this city. Now, being a woman and a businesswoman, she would have traveled. And in Acts chapter 16, she's at Philippi seems that her hometown was Thyatira. That's one of the few ver- uh, one of the few references to Thyatira outside of this one here. About 50 miles east southeast of Pergamum, so all of the cities are in intervals of under 100 miles, a walking distance in those days. This was probably the least important of all of them in terms of the culture, the city, that is. 
Ephesus, most important. This is on the other end of the spectrum. Least important. Politically, it uh, was possessed by the Romans. Romans controlled it. It was not easily defended, so it remained a small city. And in ancient times, the city was oftentimes destroyed because it didn't have a defense. Many trade guilds. It was in that valley, so it was in a rich agricultural area. That was the main source of uh, economy. Culturally, not very significant. Religiously, kind of plagued with the same problems that all of the other cities were, just a smaller scale. And that's about it. There must have been a church there since Lydia came out of that city. I would not think she was the only believer. So those are the circumstances. 2.18. Let's look at it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, identical to the others except for the name of the church. Another angelic witness, another recorder of the assessment of this inspection. And then part of verse 18 is the correspondent, his description. The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, right out of the vision. These are the omniscient eyes of the Son of God. Uh, in addition to omniscience, he's the one that is going to bring wrath. His feet are like burnished bronze, says this. So immediately, uh, just from the description, we can probably almost assume without reading it that there's going to be some problems in this church. We not only have omniscience to be able to discern the true condition of the church, but we have the illusion here to uh, judge, uh, wrath that will be poured out. Wrath and judgment. 19, we have another compliment. I know your deeds. In other words, I know your ministries. I know what you're all about. I know your emphases. I know the things you produce. And your love and faith. So they do have some positives. In fact, they have one of the key motivations, love, in the Christian walk. So this is a loving church. You might have felt welcome if you were visiting and came by. And faith, that's another very positive, very important uh, pursuit of the believer. Uh, one that is trusting what the Lord says and acting on it, living one's life in dependence. And service. Uh, they have a, a genuine service. This is, this is positive, though. So this is in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but perseverance, similar to Ephesus. They're a persevering church. They're, they're just not uh, right out of the blocks, gung-ho, and then quickly fall away. They're persevering. That your deeds of late are greater than the first. This is a growing church in terms of ministry. 
doesn't, doesn't necessarily imply size, but it implies at least growth in influence, growth in, um, in ministry. Deeds of late are greater than at first. So, probably a greater percentage of people involved in the ministries that were existing and moving forward. Which is a good thing. Uh, should be promoted and encouraged that uh, we develop ministries and encourage people to be involved in those ministries and make opportunity for others as they grow and as they discover their spiritual gift that they may be involved as well. In fact, it's a good thing, I think, that churches develop things that people can specifically be involved just for their own spiritual growth. And this is what the main complement of this church consists of. Next, we have a complaint, as is typical. But... I have this against you that you tolerate. And this is severe. Lots of positives, but uh, they tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, this comes right out of the Old Testament. And there's lots of uh, narrative. Second Kings, right? In Second Kings, on Ahab and his kingdom, a king of the north, and his wife, who was not Jewish, she's a Je- she was the original Jezebel. First Kings sixteen. Okay, not Second Kings. All right, thank you. Uh, Jezebel, you have a you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Now, this is an allusion to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. Now, she may have even had this name. I don't know. Uh, It may be a literal Jezebel, but at least uh, the allusion is she has the characteristics of the Jezebel of the Old Testament. She calls herself a prophetess. The Jezebel of the Old Testament was a destroyer of prophets. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This is a huge problem. This is an influential and probably a powerful woman that has great influence in this church. In spite of all of the positives that Christ compliments them with, This almost overshadows those good things. And evil can often do that. In fact, I've seen very, very good churches split mainly over not always, not necessarily doctrinal things or not even major things, but because of personalities within the church that split the church. This is a church that probably could be on the verge of that sort of thing if they wanted to take a stand. So we have a complaint beginning in verse 20, running all the way through verse 23. So we have extensive description of this. First part of it is the influence that she has. She leads the bond servants. So there's genuine believers there. 
and that that's a positive there. There are bond servants there. There are deep people that desire to walk with the Lord, to do what He has called them. This is a typical description of the believer and some of the leaders, bond servants. But they're influenced where their positive ministry is going to be um, undermined because they'll be led astray. And they will be involved in immoral acts and idolatry. That was very common. And it's common in our culture today. Verse 21, And I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality, so she's involved in the heart of it. More than likely, the allusion to the uh, historical situation, uh, which is understandable because it was uh, very prevalent in a lot of the cities, was the prostitution associated with the uh, uh, temple worship. Uh, Here's the main prostitute in this city. A member of the church. Behold, I will cast her upon or cast her upon a bed of sickness. Give her a venereal disease. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. I think that's an allusion to some of these physical problems that are the result of immorality. Unless they repent of her deeds. And notice that they. She's given time, but so are those that are influenced. And further, verse 23. In fact, uh, the longest complaint of all of the letters is right here in Thyatira. I will kill her children with pestilence. So here are diseases that are passed on to the next generation. And all the churches, plural will know that I am He who searches the minds and the hearts. He's the omniscient one. He's the one with the eyes of a flame of fire. So He searches the minds and the hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So in proportion to their immorality, in proportion to their idolatry, they will receive condemnation. There is a spiritual principle that I think this kind of supports the idea. It's not overtly taught here, but uh, there's a concept of the more revelation that we have, the more accountable to that revelation we are. So the church in America that has access to the Bible so freely and openly, and we own so many Bibles, and we encourage people to read them, but along with that comes responsibility to live up to it as well. Similarly, there, there seems to be a spiritual principle that, the, that there are degrees of punishment. And this is kind of implied in this verse. There are degrees of reward on the positive end for believers, but there's degrees of punishment as well. Uh, and that little phrase there at the end of verse 23, according to their deeds, this is to the, the extent, to the degree of their deeds, they're going to suffer consequences of those deeds. Yes. 
I think both. I think I think uh, sometimes the Lord uh, allows us to experience things in proportion to our sin, um, just the consequences of those sins. But remember the passage in what is it? Is it Matthew 11 where Jesus said, "Had the uh, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the same miracles that you at Capernaum had seen?" They would have repented, and he talks about degrees of punishment in that passage. So, there are degrees of hell, if you will. There are degrees of punishment at the end. And that's kind of alluded to there. And so, that, that's kind of an application we can draw. Uh, a warning, if you will, particularly... Uh, to you all who get good teaching every Sunday, uh, you're you're in and Wednesday. You, you're exposed to a lot of truth. Uh, you are more accountable than any other church in this area to live up to that truth. Uh, that's sobering. <laughs> I'll let you decide that. <laughs> uh, no, it's a serious thing. It's a serious thing, and. Uh, with privilege comes responsibility, always. Uh, that's, a, that's a biblical spiritual principle. Uh, so, uh, the alternative, in, 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 this, in this case, it's the negative. Uh, to, to the degree of, of sin, there's degree of punishment. And kind of the alternative to the, agree, to, to the degree of opportunity that God gives us. And by the way, that serves also not just exposure to God's word, but uh, God may open up greater opportunities to some than others, and they're more uh, responsible to respond to those opportunities. So that's an application to draw. Jezebel, one of the most evil characters of all of the Old Testament. They have a Jezebel. So this is a, this is a serious issue. Uh, she, here's an example of the influence that a wife has on a husband. And in this case, it's a bad influence. She influenced Ahab to more evil than probably any of the other kings. He's at the top of the list, if not close to it. Uh, there's an application to draw there. Women have lots of influence. In fact, God is, I think God has privileged women to have tremendous influence for both good and evil. And here's an example of evil. But women, I know lots of women that uh, uh, sometimes the spiritual power in the family resides in the woman. And that influence is, is great. Uh, the man is responsible. Ahab is fully responsible for not being influenced. But it speaks of the, the influence that a woman can have for evil. Uh, I would say uh, one person in that church could very well destroy that church. And some churches have been destroyed as a result of those kinds of things. She was involved in the Phoenician Baal Worship, that was her background. She was Phoenician. She was not Jewish. This was a compromise to begin with, just to marry her. She mixed Baal worship with Yahweh worship. So she would be there Sunday mornings, but 
Saturday evening, she was in the temple of Baal. Uh, Baal was the prominent god of the Phoenicians. She was a greedy murderess in the Old Testament. Remember, she tried to kill Elijah and she killed prophets. Materialistic as well. So, a summary of this church, apostasy with some faithfulness. But the apostasy overshadows the faithfulness. We're not quite completed with uh, Thyatira, but let's take a break for lunch here and we'll come back and finish Thyatira and move on to the last cities. And, and by the way, I'm probably going to take those next cities a little bit more rapidly. I want to leave enough time in the afternoon to do uh, chapters 4 and 5.